Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. From the University of Reims in France comes a study about vitamin C. Let's just add one more thing it does. It helps prevent strokes. Oh, and it promotes heart health. That's just one of the studies we're going to be going after today. Also, red meat consumption is linked to earlier onset of girls' menstrual cycles, University of Michigan. We're also going to discuss about how mindfulness in campus dorms is improving students' mental health, University of Washington. And also today, we'll look at vitamin B12. It reduces amyloid beta prototoxicity, University of Delaware. It means it protects your brain. And the inhaling of a common manufacturing material, carbon nanotubules, could inadvertently injure your brain. Virginia Commonwealth University. All of these are from mainstream scientific institutions, published their results in peer-reviewed journals, and that's what we share with you. Oh, and Harvard School of Public Health, a diet high in healthful plants reduces risk of stroke by 10%. Now that's without adding any other supplements that further reduce the stroke and increasing potassium in the diet, reducing sodium, which reduces stroke. Mindful meditation reduces stroke. And thinning the blood using green juices, eating more green plants, taking vitamin C, vitamin E, reduces stroke. All that's going to be discussed. We're only going to play one audio clip today because I have a guest in the second part of our program, a commentary from Chris Hedges on bandaging the corpse, and also a statement at the beginning of the program about a New York City school uh, wants students to stop using terms such as mom and dad because it's not inclusive enough when discussing parents. Hmm. And uh, so we're going to look at a statement by De uh, Big Tree, who took a look, and we confirm this by reviewing all of the documents on the largest study the FDA has ever done by measuring outcomes in every county in the United States. That's thousands of counties. And what they found, according to the mainstream media, all of the mainstream media, is really good news. That wearing face masks absolutely, positively, 100% confirms protection. So all those people who are questioning safe ma the safety of masks and breathing back in carbon dioxide and ending up with special types of acne and athletes running with them and, and not getting enough oxygen in your body. Obviously, that's all just nonsense by conspiracy theorists. So they said it. It's got to be true. They have the resources, the skilled staff, the highly educated personnel, the fact checkers. But they were wrong. All of them were wrong. We will play the clip, and we are posting this. You can go to PRN.FM, and you can see this in real time. I won't go further than that, except I will explore this at that time and show you how you've all been played once again. So that's our show. should be interesting. Of course, we want to always start with something positive that can empower people. And that's why we always start with something on health and healing. In that regard, <clears throat> I suggest everyone take vitamin C every day. 
all the conditions that I work with people on require large amounts of vitamin C, some intravenous vitamin C. And it's always good to first get your vitamin C from fresh fruits and vegetables, then you get even more from juicing because it's concentrated, but still it's not enough. What I'm suggesting, you'd have to eat a whole bushel basket of oranges each day to get it, and science is on my side of supporting that. This is from the University of Rennes, and it says that as much as vitamin C is an essential micronutrient, it plays a very crucial role in regulating immune function and supporting overall immune health. But recent studies show that it may also hold the key to stroke prevention. All of you who have high blood pressure or who have had a stroke, please listen up. You all want better hearts, and that's what it does. In this particular study, the university hospital used vitamin C in a group of uh, stroke patients and compared them to healthy patients. They found the vitamin C levels were greatly lower in stroke patients. They also identified high blood pressure as the leading risk factor for stroke. And the lead researchers and neurologist, uh, Stephanie Varnier, said that the link between vitamin C depletion and the high risk of this uh, hemorrhagic stroke is associated with the role of vitamin C in blood pressure regulation. Now, we knew that it thinned the blood, kept the platelets from aggregating or clumping together. That it does. In fact, having a good glass of cucumber and celery and lemon juice each day, that also will thin the blood. Much better than an aspirin with none of the side effects. Aspirins kill about somewhere between twenty and 30,000 Americans every year from bleeding. And also, taking aspirin destroys your folic acid, B12, B6, and vitamin C, which makes you more prone to elevated homocysteine, which is an, a silent marker for the health or lack of health of your heart. You get an elevated homocysteine C-reactive protein, two of these inflammatory markers, you have a real high chance of having a heart attack or stroke. So vitamin C keeps those low. And this particular type of life-threatening stroke occurs when there is bleeding within the brain tissue itself. And high blood pressure and head trauma are common causes of the ICH. Uh, and then they can cross-match it with an almost equal number of healthy controls and found there's a huge difference. So just remember, high blood pressure can be gotten there with alcohol consumption, being overweight. Those are your top risk factors. And generally, someone who's drinking alcohol or smoking or overweight is not interested in their health, and hence they wouldn't be living by precautionary principle of eating a plant-based diet and taking vitamin C. In fact, they discovered upon further research that stroke patients with normal vitamin C status spend significantly less time, 9.8 days, in the neurology care unit than stroke patients with depleted vitamin C twice that long. 18.2 days. So they recovered in half the time. Now, had they been given hyperbaric oxygen therapy, it's unlikely that uh, they would have had any time, minimal time, in, in ICUs. And by the way, here's what they said was a good level to keep in your body. 
120 milligrams. So to the people at the hospital in France, good for you for doing the study. I commend you on it. But please go and do your homework. Someone clearly, in my opinion, is remiss in not going to the scientific literature. I reversed AIDS, all symptoms from HIV positive, HIV negative, and all of the opportunistic infections in 16 out of, no, 18 out of 18 people were in the advanced study. And, and their average intake of vitamin C four days a week was 200,000 milligrams intravenous. No one had ever received that amount, but no one ever got the results before. No one ever ventured. No one ever opened that door. Well, we opened the door, and lo and behold, out come on the other side. No casualties, no side effects, cured patients. 1,200 other people with full-blown AIDS, not just HIV, full-blown, were alive and well the entire time the Tri-State Healing Center was open. Many, many years. There's no other example of that success anywhere in the world. And by the way, that's all now fully documented by a group of courageous journalists for the Society for Independent Investigative Journalism. And it's about to be released, a new documentary called The Cost of Denial. And it's based on my work. I'm not interviewed for the film, but they interviewed the doctors and nurses and the patients and uh, Tony Brown and, and a lot of other journalists. And they were able to review with the patients uh, the medical proof, biological proof, the assays of all their viral loads to show this happened. So why is it that Anthony Fauci, who headed the war on AIDS then, and in my opinion, caused the death of at least a quarter million Americans from AIDS, would not fund one penny, nor would any AIDS organization give a nickel or even come to see the results, and yet would denounce saying this wasn't possible? Well, it's been 35 years. Now the truth comes out. Think of all the people around the world who had to die so that the pro-AIDS groups who either ideologically or financially align themselves with the most toxic drug imaginable, the most toxic drug ever given long-term in world history, AZT, and all the patients died, one after the other, when it was at 1,600 milligrams. Anyhow, the theme is uh, the cost of denials. What happens when you deny a legitimate therapy because you can't control the monetizing of it? There's no patent. There's no drug. There's nothing you can do a marketing campaign. Put it another way. If this had been a drug that I created, it would have been front-page headline news in every paper in the world. Cure for AIDS found. Successful treat treatment found. Instead, go to Wikipedia and see that I'm quoting an AIDS denier. Well, they're about to pay for that because they have no idea the avalanche of lawsuits as we speak right now around the world, not just in the United States. Teams of attorneys are in the final motions of ready to file. I'm hopeful we'll file this week, but we would have filed two weeks ago, but one of the attorneys brilliantly came up with a different way of uh, going after Wikipedia. So I'll let you know when it all happens this coming. In any case, University of Michigan just came out with a study. Red meat consumption, that's what the average American eats, 95% of Americans eat red meat, is linked to earlier onset of girls' menstrual cycle, and that's not healthy. 
So just to let you know, the science is there. This was the University of Massachusetts School of Public Health and an important article about the dangers of red meat. And just look at the commercials for food. How many of them had multiple red meats? They'll have hamburger and then they'll have bacon. Two of the most deadly things you could put in your body. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was doing a webinar for about six hours, a private one, <clears throat> so I'm a little hoarse. And uh, today I'm doing a, uh, a video streaming for New York. There's going to be a big rally this weekend. I can't be there physically in person because of the enormous amount of work that's going into uh, this new anti-aging study that's coming up very shortly, only weeks away, and I have to have everything ready, and there's just a thousand thousand details, but I believe that this will be even dwarfing my previous three anti-aging studies as the things I'm doing this time could be opening up the door that can literally add 30 years onto our active life and reverse disease. So I can't be in New York, but I'm filming a presentation that hopefully will be. So I'll let you know more on it on tomorrow's show. In any case, University of Washington has an idea that mindfulness by college students improves students' mental health. And uh, because a lot of college students have had a really rough year and <clears throat> some have committed suicide, many have thought about suicide, that's not good ever. So new studies by the psychology researchers who created the program find that the strategies offered first in residence halls and later through classes and other organized campus groups have provided participants with successful methods of coping with stress in managing their emotions and learning self-compassion. And that helps everybody. So that was good. So this was published in Frontiers of Psychiatry. So if you want to help with anxiety and stress and coping, then there is one way, and that's mindful classes, mindful meditation. That's important. And finally today, vitamin B12 reduces amyloid beta uh, prototoxicity. University of Delaware did this study. And what it means is that Alzheimer's disease, which we all know is a devastating neurodegenerative disorder with no orthodox effective treatment. And by the way, uh, in our anti-aging study, we have a gentleman who had full-blown advanced in-stage Alzheimer's, and he made such an enormous improvement a year ago. So now I'm going to see what happens when I offer some new state-of-the-art things, and we're filming the whole thing. So if it works, I'll post the filming, and then we'll write an article and let the world know that you may not have a successful treatment because you're only looking at drugs, and we're doing it differently. But anyhow, just be aware that that they're finding that vitamin B12 reduces amyloid beta toxicity. And that's a big deal. That's half of what causes dementia and Alzheimer's. And uh, also there was one more study today concerning a plant-based diet. Harvard School of Public Health said a plant-based diet can re reduce the risk of stroke by 10%. Well, vitamin C can reduce the risk of stroke at 120 milligrams. I mean... My goodness, 
There's studies on thousands of milligrams benefiting. The more vitamin C you take in, the better it is. Take it in in your smoothies if you have any trouble with it causing upset stomach or loose stools because the protein in your smoothie buffers the vitamin C and gets it into the system. But now you add in a healthy plant-based diet, well, you're about 50% to the good of not having a stroke just from these. All right, and this was published in the Peer Review Journal Neurology. That's the latest on health and healing. We are 20 minutes into our program. We're going to take a break, and when we come back from the break, we're going to hear, and I'll give a commentary, a short commentary, to um, to Del Bigtree. And I want to thank Del Bigtree. I think he's doing a really good job. He's a very sincere person. He's dedicated. And more importantly, he's in it for his life because once you commit to being critical of anything involving freedom of choice, where you want freedom of choice, and an industry doesn't want you to have freedom of choice, they want the choice over your body, you're, you're a target, and they don't forget. And he brings out a lot of good stuff. On this one, he examined all the information, and we'll have a short clip of that, and then I'll give my commentary after that. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Well, a gigantic study by the CDC, the most important study that has been done, that looked at masks and looked at opening restaurants and the dangers of that, the CDC is now touting the biggest study they have ever done. And this is what that sounded like in the news. Scientists at the CDC say they now have evidence that masks work. Masks work. Masks work. Mask mandates work. And lifting mask mandates is very dangerous. Mask mandates reduce COVID-19 case counts and deaths, according to more data published today by the CDC. A sobering new study from the CDC, which looked at counties that allowed indoor dining and those with mask mandates. It found that those with restrictions had far lower rates of illness and death. With the optimism of reopening comes the warning of a flood of new infections. We have seen this movie before. When prevention measures like mask mandates are rolled back, cases go up. It's critical, 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 critical that they follow the science. Well, the news went crazy about this study. Of course, this has been a debate. This is what I, I've been blamed for spreading misinformation here by sharing studies from around the world that show that vaxxers are essentially, I mean, that masks are essentially useless. Uh, I've also pointed out the fact that originally Tony Fauci was against masks. And then he decided, no, you have to wear a mask and just recently switched to two masks, which I think proves that one mask must not have been working very well. But the media went crazy because they finally had their study. I want you to guess the rate of COVID decrease they discovered with mask wearing. Now, this study basically looked at before we had mask mandates and after in all the counties. I mean, they spent millions of dollars on this study. So this is going to be as accurate as you can get. Did masks reduce the gross rate of um, the spread of COVID by 90%? By B, 50%. By C, 20%. And as you look at that, I want to ask yourself, what percentage would you want to see the you know, decrease of the growth or the spread of COVID-19 in the cases? What percentage would warrant all that's happened with masks? Okay, now that you've asked that question, 
Why don't we go to the science for an answer? Let's look at the headline first. Association of state-issued mask mandates and allowing on-premises restaurant dining with county-level COVID-19 case and death growth rates. United States, March 1st to December 31st, 2020. Sounds huge, right? It's gigantic. I mean, county by county. And it, believe me, this was a huge study. Now, just like when you're doing a book report in elementary school and you didn't actually read the book, you got to ask yourself, could I write a whole book report just on that headline? It would be tough. But you see, the CDC does you a little favor. They give you the cliff note right at the top. So let's check out the cliff note that the CDC provided to all the journalists that don't want to read the whole study. Here we go. Here's the summary. Mask mandates were associated with decreases in daily COVID-19 case and death growth rates from 1 to 20 days, 21 to 40 days, 41 to 60 days, 61 to 80 days, and 81 to 100 days. Yes, we looked at all of those categories and days after implementation, allowing any on-premises dining at restaurants was associated with increases in daily COVID-19 case growth rates on 41 to 60 days, 61 to 80 days, and 81 to 100 days after reopening. And increases in daily mandates was associated, now we're talking about masks, with reduced SARS-CoV-2 transmission, whereas reopening restaurants for on-premises dining was associated with increased transmission. There you go. Now you got your cliff note, now you can really fake a book report, or maybe even a CNN headline news story. What you're going to say is, CDC study shows that wearing masks had significant decreases in the spread of coronavirus, and opening restaurants was seen with an incredible increase, a wave of cases, right? That's how it's reported. And that's what you had right there. They said it right in the summary, moving on. Only one thing that we do a little bit different here at the High Wire than apparently everybody else in the world of media. We actually read the whole study, okay? Including the charts even, okay? So why don't we go to the chart on this, shall we? Here's the chart that we're actually talking about. Association between state-issued mask mandates and changes in COVID-19 case and death Growth rates, United States, March 1st to 20. This is, this is what they did. Remember all those categories. So what they did was they looked at the days before they had the, the, the mandate. So 41 to 60 days before, you were at about a, a zero. Uh, at 21 to 40 days before, um, it looked like masks, you know, that not wearing masks, we we're seeing a growth rate of, you know, it was going up um, faster than before. But the reverend, one to 20 days before, this is the reference point that they do the rest of the study. The rest of the days will be referencing where were we at days one through 20. So here we go. So you ready for it? Was it 90%? Was it 50%? Was it 20%? Well, in the category of 1 to 20, the first days of the mask mandate, let's bring up this graph. There it is. 1 to 20 days after, we had an incredible 0.5% reduction in the growth rates of cases. And a 0.7%, zero point. Okay, I read the report. I looked at all the graphs. He is absolutely correct. I'm going to put this into a little different perspective as a scientist. I just finished a major study on anti-aging. I had about a 71% increase, objective, provable, blood chemistry, biometric increase over pre-standard. If you're above 5%, that's the minimum that any scientific studies considered 
for objectivity, meaning if it's less than 5%, it does not meet the standards to say that this proves something. We're not talking about 5%. We're talking about 0.5%. 0.5%. Now, that means that it's a junk study. There is no proof at all from the FDA's own major study that there was a difference, any objective difference. And, you know, it has to meet that 5% to be objective. It was 0.5%, not even a half of 1% difference. So, and then the cases. That's not people who have disease. That's just people who began to test. Now, what they don't mention here is that the longer we go, the more people are tested. The more people are tested, the more false positives you're going to get. And therefore, instead of saying these people tested positive, but the amount of thresholds that were reached, the amount of replications of the PCR test were so high that it's junk science. Even Anthony Fauci said above 35 replications to see what's under the microscope is junk. It could be a dead, you know, part of a virus. And we were seeing some of these testing companies were doing 40, 40 or 45 replications mean they were all junk. But even if you saw something was positive, you then have to independently corroborate that by symptoms uh, and other blood chemistries that can actually tell if you have a viral replication and otherwise being asymptomatic. So virtually everything that they're basing this upon is junk. Now you know the FDA did the largest study in the world on masks and found it had no statistical significance. That's the official term for it. At 0.5%, nothing could be considered statistically significant. And so that's the truth of it. But look how quickly everyone was harping in the media on we have proof, but they never showed you the graphs. They never showed you the charts. Same way when Sweden was looking at very high infectivity rates but very low mortality rates after the initial group of people died, and they found that those initial group of people dying were mainly senior citizens, average age of 81.1 years of age, dying in nursing homes. And in, in Italy, a group was over 81 years of age dying from comorbidities, emphysema, heavy smokers. They were in one of the most polluted, if not the single most polluted area of, uh, of the European Union. Yet none of that was accounted for nor were there biopsies um, and autopsies, I should say, later to determine uh, did they die because of COVID or with COVID. So you see, these figures have been manipulated. Why would someone lie about all this? And now some words to ponder from Bill Maher. When I was listening to him compare the United States to China, um, we have to understand the following that he didn't seem to include in his monologue, that look at the advances made by the United States over a 30-year period, mainly from the mid-1930s until the mid-1960s with our highway system, uh, how we had a Marshall Plan to help recover Italy, Germany, uh, Japan, how we also uh, brought highways across the United States, improved all of our dams and infrastructures, 
uh, we were a model of integrity during that period of time. We helped the whole world. And for the first time, we created a vibrant working middle class. I was a part of that. Many people in this audience were as well. But here's what we didn't do. We didn't isolate a group of people, the Uyghurs in China, uh, for reprogramming, indoctrination, or confinement, torture, or death. We didn't take a group of peaceful meditators, the Fang Gong, and put them into militarized hospitals so they can have organs harvested by the hundreds of thousands. And when they harvested everything, finally leaving the heart, take out the heart, the person dies, they, they uh, then put them into uh, having them cremated. And that was known. They didn't, uh, they, we have never gone into a country like the Chinese went in Tai, Tibet and destroyed over 50,000 of their monasteries and killed thousands of people. And then today, the natural inhabitants have no control or say so. Their language, their culture has been virtually usurped by the Chinese. We also are, have encroachment upon our freedoms, but for decade upon decade, we've had a vibrant freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, freedom to protest, freedom to address our grievances to the government. So yes, it is a marvel that you could build a 70-story skyscraper in 18 days or whatever it is, and that they are the largest infrastructure developers in the world with, I believe the last time I checked, over 75 countries joining their new Silk Road, both on water and on land. But behind all that, they're not doing it, except for one reason, become the world-dominant power. Those are loans they're giving the people, not gifts. And if you can't pay those loans back, they own that. So they'll end up owning ports, and they will have preferred status of being able to own farmlands that will not be meant to feed their local inhabitants, but rather for the people back home in China. So on the one hand, they have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, abject poverty. Yes, they have. And they're marvelous at building things, but they're also spying on the world. They have no tolerance for freedoms. So unless that is put into the equation, just looking at how they've gained and how we have lost, is important in this equation as well. Now let's hear how Belmar puts it in his own nimical and unique way. And finally, new rule, you're not gonna win the battle for the 21st century if you are a silly people. And Americans are a silly people. That's the classic phrase from Lawrence of Arabia when Lawrence tells his Bedouin allies that as long as they stay a bunch of squabbling tribes, they will remain a silly people. Well, we're the silly people now. Do you know who doesn't care that there's a stereotype of a Chinese man in a Dr. Seuss book? China. All 1.4 billion of them could give a crouching tiger flying. <laughs> because they're not a silly people. If anything, they are as serious as a prison fight. Look, we all know China does bad stuff. They break promises about Hong Kong autonomy. They put Uyghurs in camps and punish dissent. And we don't want to be that. But it's got to be something between authoritarian government that tells everyone what to do and a representative government that can't do anything at all. 
In two generations, China has built 500 entire cities from scratch, moved the majority of their huge population from poverty to the middle class, and mostly cornered the market in 5G and pharmaceuticals. Oh, and they bought Africa. Their new Silk Road initiative is the biggest infrastructure project in history, indebting not just that continent, but large parts of Asia, Europe, and the Middle East to the people who built their roads, bridges, and ports. If you want to go anywhere in the world these days, you better have a yen for travel. <laughs> yen for travel. Oh, stop it. In China alone, they have 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. America has none. Our fastest train is the train that goes around the zoo. <laughs> California wanted to build high-speed rail connecting the entire state, but alas, could not. We're six billion in the hole just trying to finish the track connecting the vital hubs of Bakersfield and Merced. <laughs> one small step for nobody, one giant leap if you're a raisin. On a national level, we've been having infrastructure week every week since 2009, but we never do anything. Half the country is having a never-ending woke competition deciding whether Mr. Potato Head has <laughs> And the other half believes we have to stop the lizard people because they're eating babies. We are a silly people. Even when we all agree on something, like getting rid of the penny, no. The inertia, the ass covering, the graft, the lawyers, the cowardice. Nothing ever moves in this impacted colon of a country. We see a problem and we ignore it, lie about it, fight about it, endlessly litigate it, sunset closet, kick it down the road, and then write a bill where a half-assed solution doesn't kick in for 10 years. China sees... China sees a problem and they fix it. They build a dam. We debate what to rename it. <laughs> That's why their airports look like this, and ours look like this. <laughs> in San Francisco, it took 10 years just to get two bus lines through environmental review. The Big Dig, a tunnel in Boston, took 16 years, and don't get me started on my solar hookup. China once put up a 57-story skyscraper in 19 days. They demolished and rebuilt the San Yuan Bridge in Beijing in 43 hours. We binge watch, they binge build. When COVID hit Wuhan, the city built a quarantine center with 4,000 rooms in 10 days, and they barely had to use it because they quickly arrested the spread of the disease. They were back to throwing raves in swimming pools. Well, we were stuck at home surfing the dark web for black market Charmin. <laughs> we're not losing to China. We lost. The returns just haven't all come in yet. They made robots that check a kid's temperature and got their asses back in school. Most of our kids are still pretending to take Zoom classes while they watch TikTok and their brain cells slowly commit ritual suicide. As George Bush once said, is our children learning?
There is a progressive trend now to sacrifice merit for equity. Colleges are chucking the SAT and ACT test, and in New York, Mayor de Blasio announced merit would no longer decide who gets into the schools for advanced learners, but rather a lottery system. You think China's doing that, letting political correctness get in the way of nurturing their best and brightest? You think Chinese colleges are offering courses in the philosophy of Star Trek, the sociology of Seinfeld, and surviving the coming zombie apocalypse. Those are real, and so is China, and they are eating our lunch. And believe me, in an hour, they'll, they'll be hungry again. There's a gentleman, he calls himself the old man in the chair. He's been practicing medicine for 50 years till he recently retired, and he's very concerned about something concerning the vaccines. Let's hear what he has to say. If you've been watching my videos for a while, you'll know that I never exaggerate. You'll also know that for the last year, my predictions, assessments, and interpretations have been absolutely accurate. Now, more than ever, I need your help. Unless we work together, we are doomed. I need your help because we need to reach millions with this video. And with the big platforms and the mainstream media having banned me, I can't reach those millions without you. But the politicians and the advisors did everything wrong and those who questioned what was happening were demonised and silenced. The fact is that the immune systems of healthy people are boosted through interactions with others. Healthy children and young adults have very powerful immune systems. It's really only the elderly and the frail who are most likely to be threatened by a new virus. And yet the world's politicians and their advisers deliberately led us into a mass vaccination programme. The public were originally assured that only through a huge vaccination program could they possibly win back some of their lost freedoms. This was always dangerous nonsense. However, the experimental vaccines which were approved so quickly were never going to do what people were told they would do. The vaccines weren't designed to prevent infection or transmission. The vaccines don't stop people getting COVID-19 and they don't stop them passing it on if they do get it. The vaccines merely help limit the seriousness of the symptoms for some of those who are injected. That's not what most people believe, of course. The vast majority of people who've been vaccinated believe they've been protected against the infection. It was another fraud. Apart from the rather important fact that they don't do what people think they do, there are three huge problems with the vaccines. The first problem, of course, is that these experimental vaccines have already proved to be desperately dangerous, killing many people already and producing serious adverse events in many more. The size of this particular problem can be judged by the fact that even the authorities admit that probably only one in a hundred vaccine-related deaths and serious injuries will be reported. It's impossible to estimate how many will die of allergy problems, heart trouble, strokes, neurological problems and so on, or how many will be blinded or paralysed. The death toll is terrifying, but most authorities keep insisting that these are all coincidences. When someone died within 60 or 28 days of a positive COVID-19 test, even if the test result was false, they were automatically treated as a COVID-19 death to push up the figures. But when healthy young people die within hours of having a vaccination, the deaths are dismissed as just coincidences. 
What a lot of tragic coincidences there have been. The second problem is the immune system problem known as pathogenic priming or a cytokine storm. What happens is that the immune system of the person who's been vaccinated will be primed to respond in a very dramatic way if that individual comes into contact with the virus in the future. The result can be catastrophic and this is what I fear will happen in the autumn and during next winter. The people who've had the vaccine are going to be in real trouble when they next come into contact with the coronavirus. Their immune systems will overreact and that's likely to be when there will be lots of deaths. Patients haven't been officially warned about this problem, although the evidence was published in the International Journal of Clinical Practice for October last year. The paper's entitled Informed Consent Disclosure to Vaccine Trial Subjects of Risk of COVID-19 Vaccines Worsening Clinical Disease. But there's been no informed consent for patients, and I suspect that most doctors remain ignorant of the risks. Patients are being told that there are no dangers with these vaccines. The elderly and those with poor immune systems are particularly likely to be killed. And what will give you a poor immune system? Wearing a mask, being isolated from other people and not getting enough sunshine are three obvious causes. Drinking too much alcohol and smoking too much tobacco while under house arrest don't help. The extra deaths will, I fear, probably occur in the autumn when vaccinated individuals are most likely to be exposed to the virus. The coronavirus spreads most rapidly in autumn and winter. As a result of the epidemic of illnesses and deaths that will take place, governments will start promoting the next round of vaccinations. There'll be much talk of mutations, of course, and new, hurriedly prepared experimental vaccines will be produced and heavily promoted by celebrities who don't know anything about medicine or vaccines. Doctors who understand the dangers, but who have doubts, will, as usual, be silenced. And this brings us to the third problem, a problem I don't think they expected. This problem has just been outlined by Dr. Gert van den Bosch, who's a very eminent vaccine specialist. Indeed, I was originally sceptical about what he said because Dr. Bosch has previously worked with Gavi and the Gates Foundation. He's the last person in the world who could be described as being opposed to vaccination. Dr. Bosch has pointed out that the vaccines which are currently being used are the wrong weapons to use for this war against a virus infection. Disastrously, by giving vaccines to millions, we're teaching the virus how to mutate and to become stronger and more deadly. Trying to devise new vaccines for new mutations simply makes things worse because the scientists can't possibly get ahead of the mutated viruses. And the people who have been vaccinated are now sharing mutated viruses with those around them. And the mutations are becoming stronger and deadlier. Ending the lockdowns will be perfectly timed to ensure that new mutations of the COVID-19 virus are spread far and wide. There's another associated problem too. Normally our bodies contain white blood cells which help us defeat infections. Cells called NK cells, the NK stands for natural killers, help kill off invading bad cells. Once the NK cells have done their work, our antibodies appear and clear up the mess. 
However, Dr. Bosch explains that the COVID-19 vaccines are triggering the production of very specific antibodies which compete with the natural defences of the individuals who've had the vaccines. The natural defence systems of those who've been vaccinated are being suppressed because the specific antibodies which have been produced by the vaccine just take over. And these specific antibodies, the ones produced by the vaccines, are permanent. They're there forever within the bodies of the people who've been vaccinated. The disastrous result is that the natural immune systems of the tens or hundreds of millions who are having the vaccines are being effectively destroyed. Their immune systems will not be able to fight any mutated variation of the virus which develops within their bodies. And those mutated viruses can spread out into the community. I believe this is why new virus variations are appearing in areas where the vaccine has been given to lots of people. The bottom line is that giving the vaccines will give the virus an opportunity to become infinitely more dangerous. Every vaccinated individual has the potential to become a mass murderer because their bodies are becoming laboratories making lethal viruses. And worse still, some of the vaccinated individuals may become asymptomatic carriers, spreading lethal viruses around them. And the people who've had the vaccine won't be able to respond to the mutations because their immune systems have been taken over by an artificial defence system given to them by the vaccine and designed to combat the original form of the COVID-19 virus. The vaccinated individuals are going to be very much at risk when the new mutations start to spread. Their bodies are permanently and exclusively geared to defend against a form of the virus which is rapidly becoming out of date. Giving new vaccines won't help because the mutated virus will not be vulnerable. The scientists who are making vaccines won't be able to get ahead of the mutating virus. This should have been foreseen. It's the problem which explains why flu vaccines often don't work. The politicians and their advisers will lie and blame those who haven't had the vaccine for the development of new mutations and for the rise in deaths that's going to take place. But if Dr. Bosch is right, and I believe he is, then it's the vaccinated individuals who are going to threaten mankind. There'll be a major threat to anyone who's been vaccinated, but there'll also be a major threat to the unvaccinated because the viruses they're shedding are going to be more dangerous than the original one. We are in very dangerous territory. Finally today, I think it's important that we hear some insights from and about Edward Snowden, about our privacies and how they've been taken away. In this regard, we're not so different than Russia or, this, uh, or China. We just don't appreciate how invasive they have been and how deep it goes. So, picture your life in a place where everything you do, what you buy, how you behave, is tracked. The government gives you a score and the score is a measure of how trustworthy you are as a citizen. It sounds like that show Black Mirror, but it's actually happening in China. When I worked in the CIA and when I worked in the NSA previously, uh, as a technologist, as a systems administrator, I had broad access, much broader access than other people. Uh, and I could read uh, many different things. So I already knew a lot about what was going on relative to the average person. 
But when I reached the Office of Information Sharing, of which I was the only employee, I was the Office of Information Sharing, uh, now I had basically the same access to go around and read whatever I wanted as the director of the NSA. Uh, and so what did I do? I, I wrote some scrapers. Uh, and I, I started to see everything that was out there. Uh, and everything got centralized in Hawaii. And this was so I could share it out uh, and create a little system that showed people this goes here and this goes there. And this might be useful for you in your office and that office. Uh, but I got to see what was going on in every office. And there weren't a lot of people in NSA who got to see this. Um, and when I did it, 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 started to, it started to really trouble me. Now, you guys know um, what happened when we go back uh, to the history. This is, of course, the, the most famous slide for you guys, because it's not about phones. It's about the Internet. This was where the largest Internet service providers in the United States had secretly been going far beyond what the law required of them. Uh, to cooperate with government and hand over, in many cases, without warrants, um, the entire Google histories, you know, Facebook histories, uh, whatever's in your iCloud account, and so on and so forth, uh, over to the government under uh, a system of secret court orders. Uh, this was unfortunately just where it, it, it began. And it wasn't just the Internet. There was a, a program that, that people uh, saw that actually wasn't related to me. This was follow-up reporting uh, that came, well, I, I think, actually some years later uh, in the United States uh, about the phone companies. AT&T is one of our largest, of course, phone networks. Uh, and, and what they found was that AT&T had been collecting the phone records of everyone who crossed their system and never getting rid of them for ages, right? If you're younger, uh, if your birth date is after 1987, uh, and either you're an American or you called the United States, right, because anything that crossed their network went there too, uh, they have every call that you ever made, because that's how far their, their records go back. Uh, they were keeping the tower data, which is, of course, uh, the, the ledger of your cell phone screaming, here I am, here I am, here I am. Uh, going all the way back to July 2008, right? So they have more than a 10-year history of everyone's movements as they cross their, the path of their cell phone towers. Um, and this is, this is the kind of thing that was just spreading and spreading and spreading everywhere. On the Internet, because we hadn't been encrypting things by default, uh, we saw the NSA and their partners, the, the, the Five Eyes countries, as they're called. That's uh, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, the, the Anglophone guys, um, had just been looking across the backbone for anything that was even remotely interesting. And then what were they doing? They were just writing a scraper, right? They were just pulling things off the wire. And so they were getting pictures of your webcams. They were getting uh, everything that you typed into the search box before Google finally went and encrypted it. And then they had to ask Google for it, but Google would still handle it over, uh, all because uh, things were not encrypted as they were in transit. Now, the thing I love about this chart, of course, is if you look at the timeline, uh, I think this is the right one, you see there's a big spike uh, right after June of 2013, which was the month that these uh, revelations of mass surveillance first came forward. And this is where I want to talk about you guys as a cohort, not just as the people working on, on Web3 uh, sort of initiatives, uh, but as technologists. You did that. Right, that spike is, is you. I didn't do that, 
you know, I was on the run from the greatest manhunt, you know, that we've, we've had in the United States in, in quite some time. Uh, but somebody read the news and somebody went, you know what, we're going to shift our site to HTTPS. You know, what? we're going to retool our browser to prefer these kind of things. We're going to make our application send these things. Uh, that's just in Chrome, right? But I can tell you from a lot of conversations that is happening across the internet. And so what did these agencies uh, do in response? They go, oh no, people are uh, collecting things in transit. And of course, this is the problem they've always had throughout history. They go, you know, these people know what they're doing. They use encryption. Uh, so we can't catch it in transit. Well, what can we do instead? And we see that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're an ally or an enemy. Uh, the British version of the NSA uh, put together a really complex operation to actually hack into Belgium's national telecommunications provider, Belgicom, right? Uh, now, mind you, they had legal means to get all of the information they wanted. They could use what's called a mutual legal assistance treaty to simply go right to the Belgian law enforcement uh, agencies and go, we need this, we need that, you know, please provide it to them. And it would take a little time because people would have to actually check it, but then they would get it. Instead, they went, well, why don't we just let ourselves in? Then we don't have to deal with their encryption because we have their keys. Uh, we can reroute their traffic. We can change the uh, traffic flows to be more preferential to us, to route communications of interest past our Do interception point. To why? Slido? Because we said so. Then, uh, as we've gone further and further away from this 2013 moment, as encryption has become more effective, as it's become more pervasive, uh, we've seen malware uh, and hacking attempts uh, really explode and go beyond the government, uh, specifically into private industries. There's this Israeli company called the NSO Group. I'm sure many of you have heard about them. Uh, one of the things they really love to do uh, is look for weaknesses in iMessage. iMessage, of course, is enabled by default on every iPhone in the world. Uh, we just got some CVEs uh, about uh, iMessage, I think, uh, out of Project Zero at Google uh, just a couple weeks ago. And it's great that these holes are finally being closed, but you need to think about how long they were open, how many others there are, and what's next, right? When iMessage is finally a, a little bit more secure and it's just too uh, difficult to find a fully remote bug um, easily, where will they move next, right? Uh, encryption is not the answer to every problem, but encryption is the standard basis for every conversation we need to have. And this is the thing, if we have companies, NSO is valued privately at $1 billion or more right now because they were just sold for that. Uh, these guys are selling uh, malware toolkits to governments for millions and millions of dollars. I think the Mexican government bought it for $18 million. I think the Saudis bought it for more than $50 million, five zero, not one five. Um, again, fact check me on these because it's all public now. The, these records are out there. But who were they using it against? They were using it against the head of their opposition domestically. Uh, they were using it against journalists that were reporting on the corruption of the president. Uh, and so this is, this is what we start to see. We start to see corporations going, well, why don't, instead of making security safer, why don't we make it weaker? And of course, the NSA has always been doing this. They've been discovering vulnerabilities, they've been exploiting vulnerabilities, and then they've not been reporting them. Well, the problem is those things leak too. They can't even keep their weapons safe. And then they hit us. They shut down the National Health Service uh, in the UK. They shut down shipping around the world with Maersk. Uh, and all of these are derived from NSA bugs, right? That should have been reported and patched years ago.
Uh, unfortunately, proprietary software, you guys know how that works. But even when this doesn't happen, I, I want you guys to remember, look, you can make your software more secure. Uh, you can increase the security of the route as you're in transit. But we see things moving increasingly more and more to the physical layer. Uh, this is Baltimore, Maryland in the United States on the day uh, of a Black Lives Matters protest. Uh, this is a minority protest movement uh, against police brutality. And one of the interesting things we saw was an FBI surveillance plane uh, during the entirety of the protest was simply doing orbits again and again and again and again. And the only reason they do that uh, in this kind of way is to form a census of which phones are in the area on the basis of their uh, radio identifiers, right? Again, those globally unique or universally unique identifiers that are baked into hardware. And so I want you guys to constantly be thinking about where can we strip these identities out? Because now it's not on planes, right? Uh, now it's on the cell phone tower next to you. Now it's in the gas station. Now it's at the mall, right? At the gates and at every store. Um, and this is uh, something that's going to continue to continue uh, or continue to get worse. And like, where is this going? Uh, we see in China uh, where they really don't care uh, about the public narratives because they can use their information control uh, to maintain public support despite the abuses. Um, this is not going to be uh, theory. This is not going to be fearful conversations from paranoiacs like myself uh, and hopefully yourself. Um, this is going to be everyone. This is going to be your, your neighbors. This is going to be your family. This is going to be people who don't understand politics, who don't understand technology because they don't have time, right? They have other obligations. They have other things they've dedicated their lives to, and they're just trying to get through the day. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.